0: Pastor Sean Cole. As you can tell if you've listened to this podcast over the past year that I really like Eric Johnson. He does the opening, or I use his music for the opening, and he's, I think, one of the greatest guitarists of all time, and I really appreciate his music. He um, writes some great, great music, and I like to use that as, as the music for the podcast. And so thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Um, I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. We are so thankful that you're listening to our podcast today. I do want to give uh, props to uh, Leighton Flowers. Leighton Flowers and I have done some podcasts together. Uh, We've done some debates together. Obviously, he and I are on different sides of the aisle when it comes to the issue of Calvinism. And I do listen to his podcast from time to time, Soteriology 101. I appreciate his heart. Uh, I consider Leighton a friend um, even though we disagree, and I and I really do appreciate his latest podcast interviewing uh, Dr. Steve Gaines, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I found it very uh, helpful. Um, I found it very enlightening. I disagreed with uh, some of the things that were said, and I, and I assumed I would, but I thought it was very good. And, and very, that that Layton Flowers was able to get Steve Gaines to be on there, and I. Appreciate uh, the heart of Steve Gaines. I will say this, if I would have been at the Southern Baptist Convention back in June, I would have voted for J.D. Greer. Um, I would probably not have voted for Steve Gaines. And it, it wasn't necessarily because of the Calvinism and that I want a Calvinistic takeover of our convention. Um, I just resonate more with uh, J.D. Greer, with his philosophy of ministry, the fact that he's a younger pastor, and I really believe that we need to get the younger generation more um, involved in our, the life of our convention. And so um, I probably would have voted, I not probably, I definitely would have voted for J.D. Greer. But I watched the whole thing on live stream, and it was very um, ridiculous. In the sense that uh, both of them were willing to step aside and let the other be the president. And I think J.D. Greer showed a lot of grace and humility. And um, I really appreciated the way the whole thing turned out. It was a great, a, a great. Um, a great opportunity to really show the gospel of grace. And and I have heard a lot of things from Steve Gaines over the years. Um, the first time I heard him preach was he came out to uh, the Colorado Baptist Convention Pastors Conference, I think probably way back in like 2001 or 2002, early 2000s. And he preached a great expository sermon, and he was fiery, and I didn't have any disagreements of what he said. He, he hammered a lot on Joel Osteen, because I think that was when Joel Osteen was really uh, making a, a headway and becoming... Really popularized but recently I've kind of followed him on Twitter and some other things and he's um, you know definitely um, I wouldn't call him anti-Calvinistic but I would definitely say that he is a a strong traditionalist non-Calvinist Southern Baptist and he definitely has some strong views on methodology as far as the use of the sinner's prayer the use of the altar call Um, The whole methodology that has become part and parcel, really, of Southern Baptist methodology and how, um, not our church does it, but how a lot, the vast majority... And one of the things that he said um, that was kind of a sweeping statement. I'm going to play some parts of this interview here in just a moment so you can interact in case you didn't uh, listen to it. I encourage you to go back on Soteriology 101 and listen to the whole interview, especially if you are a Southern Baptist and you're listening to this. I know many of you are not and probably could care less, but many of you are. And I think it's important to hear uh, what our president Um, has to say about these important issues. But I think sometimes people make sweeping statements saying things like the vast majority of the lay people in our Southern Baptist churches are non-Calvinistic. That's a sweeping statement. I cannot make that statement. I've not been in every single of our 40,000 churches to see what the vast majority believe. And so that's um, empirical evidence based upon his limited observation of really churches in the South, I think. Um, My observation based upon me is that, um, you know, my church, and and I could probably say that he's probably right that the vast, maybe not vast, but the majority of Southern Baptist churches, most people in the older generation, probably not younger, I think the younger generation probably holds more being open to Reformed theology just because of the, the influences of people like Matt Chandler and David Platt and John Piper and the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel and, and, and movements like that, I think, especially the seminaries, and they talked a lot about that. But what I want to do in this podcast is really talk about the whole idea of the sinner's prayer, the altar call, The verbiage that we often use of asking Jesus into your heart. A lot of these things that if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, you just took for granted. I mean, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Texas, and then we moved to Colorado in 1986 when I was 15 years old, and at that time it was also practicing the same thing. And so uh, almost every church that I've been in, except for the church that I've pastored, I've seen the altar call. Now, if you're not in a Southern Baptist church, this may be a little bit foreign to you. If you are in a Southern Baptist church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. At the end of the service, at the end of the message, there's this gospel appeal to either ask Jesus into your heart, to come forward at the altar, to raise your hand, to sign a card, Uh, this whole visible, demonstrable act of getting out of your chair or doing something physically moving to indicate that you have made the decision to trust Christ for salvation, and there's usually salvation counselors down there, and um, sometimes it's manipulative, sometimes it's not. Um, Let me just tell you how we do it at our church. We do not do what we call an altar call. I don't call it an altar call because the reason I don't call it an altar call, let me just tell you why I don't call it an altar call. Nowhere in the Bible do we see the front of a platform being called the altar as a matter of fact if you do an intense study of the book of hebrews the only altar that we have is christ christ alone he is the altar he's the one that we're to come directly to and so we don't call people to a geographic space at the front of the sanctuary called the altar we call people to come directly to christ because there is no altar anymore In the Old Testament, they sacrificed on the altar. Um, Abraham took um, Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice him on the altar, a picture of substitutionary atonement. Then in the sacrificial system, in the tabernacle of the temple, you had the altar But now that Christ has come and fulfilled the law, and He is the high priest, and He is the propitiation for our sins, He is the once and for all atonement for our sins, He is the altar, He is the high priest, He's interceding for us in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, in the finished work, as our one advocate, He alone is the altar, so we call people to come directly to Christ, and so we don't call it an altar call. Here's what I say at the end of my message. After I've asked people, after I've concluded my sermon and I've asked people to bow their heads and close their eyes, I may lead us through a time of prayer, but I'm not leading people through a sinner's prayer. I'm not asking them to repeat after me. I may give some silent time there for people to respond to the Word. I think that they need to respond to the preached Word of God, and so we may have extended amount of silent prayer where people are responding in their hearts. However, God may... um, The Holy Spirit may take that message and and move in their hearts. And then um, I will pray for everybody corporately. And then I will say amen. And then after that, I will say something like this. If you are here today and the message, the sermon, the word of God has caused some confusion or maybe it's resonated in your life or you want more clarification or you need prayer or you need someone to talk to, We would love to meet with you after the service. Myself, my youth pastor, our elders, our deacons, we make ourselves available out down here at the front for you to come and to meet with us. And I also say something like this. I'm not a priest because we have a lot of Roman Catholics in our community. A lot of people coming out of Catholicism, and a lot of times they equate this whole idea of, uh, of, of a Baptist pastor being a priest that they need to go to. I will, from time to time, say something like this. I am not a priest. You're not coming to me for confession. You're not coming to me to somehow uh, get a, a magical access to God. I'm just here as a pastor to encourage and pray for you and to answer some questions. And oftentimes after the service, pretty much almost every Sunday, somebody will come down, and it may not be for salvation. It may be for prayer. Maybe somebody is having surgery, and they want the pastor for me to pray with them. Some people like, you know, I'm confused. I'm having marriage problems. Um, All different types of of issues. People come down, and then I pray with them, but I do not ever lead them in a sinner's prayer. I do not ever give them immediate assurance of salvation, and I do not turn, have them sign a card saying that they're now members of the church, and then I turn around and present them to the congregation. Here's happened when i was growing up i can tell you exactly in almost every southern baptist church i grew up in in texas and in colorado here's what happened you would have the public invitation you would sing the invitation hymn and it was probably one of three hymns just as i am softly and tenderly jesus is waiting waiting for Sinners like you and me to open the door and let him come in. I mean, a lot of Arminian theology, something like that. Have thine own way. Some, some, or I surrender all. Probably one of those four songs were sung. You had come down. Please come down. If you want to ask Jesus in your heart, come down to the front. Come down right now. Come down and talk to somebody. We open your heart to Jesus. Invite Jesus in your heart. Come, come on down. Come forward. Come down. And then people would get out of their seat and they would come down. And um, they would talk to the pastor or whoever was down there, and the pastor would lead them, or whoever the decision counselor they called it would lead them through a sinner's prayer. They would talk to them briefly about the gospel while the third or fourth verse of "Of Just I Am" is being played, and everybody's watching down there to see what's going on. And then, in the you know the brief thirty seconds, they after they've said yes to the sinner's prayer, then they have to fill out the registration card saying, "Okay, you've said the sinner's prayer, you've asked Jesus in your heart, now you're a member of." the Church, and and not necessarily a member, but you're 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 registering your your profession of faith today, and then after. The invitation's over and maybe after a few announcements, um, the pastor would stand up and say, I want to introduce to you um, Sally and Joe. Sally and Joe have come forward today for salvation. They've just prayed to receive Christ. If you're ready to welcome them into fellowship as their new brothers and sisters in Christ, why don't you give a hearty amen? And everybody would say amen. And then after the service, people would come up and, and there would be a long line to greet them and welcome them into the family of God because now they are believers in Jesus. That's what I saw growing up, and I can't tell you how many times I saw people go forward, pray a prayer, maybe get emotional, be introduced by the pastor as being saved. We heartily welcomed him into the church with a hearty amen, and I never saw them ever again darken the doors of the church. Now, sometimes people did. God sovereignly saves sinners regardless of what methodology you use. People can get saved in Armenian theology. My wife was saved at a Billy Graham crusade in Denver in the mid-80s. And she, you know, to this day is, is more, you know, doctrines of grace reformed, obviously, in her leanings. But God saved her through that. And it was a Billy Graham crusade. And you know a lot about how the Billy Graham crusades worked. If you grew up, it was very Arminian, very uh, much, you know, having people in the audience that were primed to come forward uh, very much. And we'll talk about the history of the altar call here in just a moment. But Billy Graham perfected it. And as he perfected it, um, it's it's part and parcel. I mean, one of the things that happened uh, that that I see now is is Greg Laurie. Um, Nothing against Greg Laurie, but, um, you know, we we had a... um, uh, you know, I've seen him do his harvest crusades and uh, on TV and, um, you know, different people have told me about that. And he's very much a proponent of come forward, pray the sinner's prayer, immediately giving assurance of salvation. If you prayed this prayer, now you're saved. And so the question then becomes, okay, is this biblical? Is it non-biblical? Is it a big deal? Is it a big issue? Should we, should we not do it? Uh, what's our methodology? And there's a lot of division over Methodology. And so, as I've said many, many times, your theology will drive or influence or motivate your methodology. You may not consciously know that, and you may not articulate that, but how you do ministry often stems from your theological beliefs. So, if you are synergistic, if you are more Arminian-leaning, if you are more semi-Pelagian, if you have more of the the focus on man's free will to respond to God, that's going to affect your methodology. If you're more Calvinistic and, and, and believe more in the total depravity and inability of humans and the, and the regener, regenerate, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in drawing and bringing sinners to salvation, that's going to affect your methodology. And what we have right now in the Southern Baptist Convention is a competition of two theologies that influence two methodologies. And so oftentimes we can argue over the methodology, but really the issue is the theology, And so, do you have an altar call? Do you not have an altar call? Do you have an invitation? Do you not have an invitation? Do you use the terminology, ask Jesus into your heart? Do you not use that terminology? Do you um, use the sinner's prayer? Do you not? Those are secondary. What initially is the issue is the theology. And I think Leighton Flowers, when he interviewed Steve Games, really um, captured this, and I'm not going to play the entire clip Uh, But I do want to talk about the sinner's prayer and this whole idea of some some issues that he talked about there. And and back in 2012, at the Southern Baptist Convention, there was the sinner's prayer resolution. And actually, one of my elders and his wife, um, who's my secretary, were at the convention. I was not able to go. It was in New Orleans. And um, they came back, and they were just literally floored that we actually spent all that time on the convention floor debating over the sinner's prayer. And they just thought it was pretty much kind of facetious that there would actually be um, this, this whole hubbub about the sinner's prayer. But Steve Gaines brings up the wording of the original um, resolution brought by Eric Hankins and then the finalized one that actually was voted on and, and, and to see the iterations between the two. And there is a, there is a difference. So let's listen to this together and then I will respond
1: you know I do think that we have distinctions I think that we have differences I go back to uh, 2012 I believe it was um, when I was at the Southern Baptist Convention and a uh, we had to have a a resolution in favor of the sinners prayer Hmm. and the, but they, the resolutions committee that year changed the original uh, resolution that had been submitted by Dr. Eric Hankins, who's pastor at First Baptist Church, Oxford, Mississippi. Right. Uh, and there were some significant changes in there, in my opinion. For instance, the um, the SBC resolution that we passed says the Gospel of Jesus Christ offers full forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God to anyone who repents of sin and trusts in Christ. But uh, Dr. Hankins' original resolution said God desires for every person to be saved and has made salvation available for any person who hears the gospel. Now, that may not sound like a lot of difference, but Dr. Hankins is saying that God wants everyone to be saved. And Mm -hmm. I believe that with all of my heart that that is what the average Southern Baptist person believes, That's right. both the pastors and the lay people, but the Southern Baptist Convention Resolution did not word it that way. It says that God saves anyone who repents and trusts Christ. Well, there's no mention of God wanting to save every person. That is a major, major difference, and I could give you, I don't want to overly critique that thing, but sure. I just, if you had told me back when I was a student in seminary in 1985 when I went to my first Southern Baptist Convention in Dallas, Texas, 27-year-old pastor, Ph.D. student at Southwestern, that 27 years later in 2012, I'd be speaking on behalf of a sinner's prayer uh, you know, resolution to, to, be, to, to say that a sinner's prayer is valid. I would have laughed at you. But I'm not laughing now. And I'm telling you, man, people like R.G. Lee, Herschel Hobbs, W.A. Criswell, Adrian Rogers, yeah. I think they'd roll over in their grave if they thought that we were discussing even the validity of a sinner's prayer. Now, okay. I miss those guys. They had convictions.
0: Okay, let's just stop it right there. And you can basically see um, the the issue related to the sinner's prayer resolution. And what I want to do is, in case you're not privy to all of this, and you didn't follow this, and I, of course it's it's ancient history uh, back in 2012, but I think it does illustrate the, the key, some of the key differences. So what I want to do is I want to read uh, the original um, wording of this resolution that Eric Hankin submitted. That um, And if you know who Eric Hankins is, he is one of the leaders of the traditionalist movement. He actually coined the term traditionalism. Um, he's part of the Connect 316. He is um, really the, one of the spearheaders of the, the non-Calvinistic uh, traditionalist Southern Baptist movement. Um, here's the original um, wording of the resolution he submitted. Let me just read this verbatim. "...whereas God desires for every person to be saved and has made salvation available for any person who hears the gospel, and whereas a free response to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel is both possible and necessary in order for anyone to be born again, whereas prayer is a God's gracious means through which any person can communicate with Him and is everywhere in Scripture commanded and commended for every matter and every person... Whereas praying to God to express repentance for sins, to acknowledge Christ as Lord and to ask for forgiveness and salvation is modeled in the Bible. And whereas while there is no one uniform wording found in Scripture or in the churches for, quote, a sinner's prayer, unquote, the prayer of repentance and faith, acknowledging salvation through Christ alone and expressing complete surrender to His Lordship is the biblical means by which any person can turn from sin and self, place his faith in Christ and find forgiveness and eternal life. Whereas it is biblically appropriate to help a sinner in calling on the Lord for salvation and to speak of Christ's response to such a prayer as entering a sinner's heart and life... And whereas a sinner's prayer is not an incantation that results in salvation merely by its recitation and should never be manipulatively employed or utilized apart from a clear articulation of the gospel, now therefore be it resolved that the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana, June 19th through 20th, 2012, commend the use of a sinner's prayer as a biblically sound and spiritually significant component of the evangelistic task of the church, and be it further resolved that we encourage all Christians to enthusiastically and intentionally proclaim the gospel to sinners everywhere being prepared to give them a reason for the hope we have in Christ and being prepared to lead them to confess faith in Christ, including praying to receive Him as Savior and Lord." I don't want to dissect that statement, but you've heard it. Um, There's all these whereas, 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 and and the resolution basically is is that the Southern Baptist Convention, this is really what they're calling on, the Southern Baptist Convention commend the use of a sinner's prayer as a biblically sound and spiritually significant component of the evangelistic task of the church. So they're just basically saying, we commend Southern Baptists and Southern Baptist churches to use the sinner's prayer as a biblically sound and spiritually significant component of the evangelistic task they're not mandating that everybody has to do it and, and by the way a resolutions a resolution the way the southern baptist convention works these resolutions are really in a sense not binding on any church we are a coalition of autonomous churches that voluntarily cooperate. We meet once a year for the convention. There are resolutions, there are budgets passed, but really a resolution is really not binding. It's really a statement that is made by the majority of messengers that are present at the Southern Baptist Convention to give basically a statement of what that particular group of Southern Baptists, meaning it that year, have articulated as important. And so that year, the, the issue was the sinner's prayer. And so the, the, ori- the original resolution, and you have to understand the background of how this all works, you, there's a resolutions committee in the Southern Baptist Convention. And there's a resolutions chairman. And so the resolutions committee receives in writing the resolutions. They look at these resolutions. They have the right to wordsmith and change and modify or even reject resolutions. Resolutions are given all the time. And then they can present to the entire convention what the resolution says to be voted on. And that's exactly what the process was. This resolution by Eric Hankins was submitted to the resolutions committee. The resolutions committee looked at it, they debated about it, they met at the convention, they wordsmithed it, they changed it according to what Steve Gaines said, he's absolutely right, they changed it. Here is the new statement, the one that was actually affirmed at the convention. So it's a little bit shorter, they shortened it a lot, so let me give you the one that was actually adopted that was changed. And you, you can see the, the, the difference in the wording. So here's the new one, the one that's actually the official one. Let me quote it for you. Quote, Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ offers full forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God to anyone who repents of sin and trust in Christ, and whereas this same gospel commands all persons everywhere to believe this gospel and receive Christ as Savior and Lord, and whereas the Scriptures give examples of persons from diverse backgrounds who cried out for mercy and were heard by God, And whereas the Scripture also gives numerous examples of persons who verbally affirm gospel truths, but who did not personally know Jesus in a saving relationship, and whereas empty religion and formalism of whatever kind, apart from personal relationship with Christ, cannot wash away sin or transform a heart, whereas the Bible speaks of salvation as including both a confession with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and a belief in the heart that God has raised Him from the dead, resolved, that the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana, June 19-20, 2012, reaffirm our gospel conviction that repentance from sin and personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are necessary for salvation, and be it further resolved that we affirm that repentance and faith involve a crying out for mercy and a calling on the Lord, often identified as a sinner's prayer, as a biblical expression of repentance and faith, And be it further resolved that a sinner's prayer is not an incantation that results in salvation merely by its recitation and should never be manipulatively employed or utilized apart from a clear articulation of the gospel. And be it further resolved that we promote any and all biblical means of urging sinners to call on the name of the Lord in prayer of repentance and faith, And be it finally resolved that we call on Southern Baptists everywhere to continue to carry out the Great Commission in North America and around the world so that sinners everywhere of every tribe, tongue, and language may cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now I have to tell you that I believe that the actual changed resolution, the one that was actually adopted, is better worded. It's more faithful biblically. And I think it does not... It focuses more on the biblical command for people to repent and believe as opposed to commending the use of a sinner's prayer as a tool. We're arguing over a tool, a method. And so the resolution changed and said, let's just get this whole methodology tool bit out of it. We'll, We'll give token statement to a sinner's prayer, but let's focus more on the biblical injunction, the biblical commands to repent and to believe. And so I think that the resolutions committee actually did a great job in changing the wording to make it reflect a more biblically robust expression of what the the call to repent and believe really is. And so let's talk about this whole issue of the invitation, the appeal. Is it biblical to give an invitation? And my answer to that question is, yes, but how do you define the invitation? Because all throughout the scriptures, you have invitations to come in faith directly to Christ. We do not see a altar call methodology in the Bible. We do not see a repeat after me sinner's prayer methodology in the Bible. We do not see a come forward at the end of the service methodology in the Bible. We do not say raise your hand. At the, in the Bible, we don't see sign a card. We don't see these methodologies. Methodologies. But we do see invitations to believe in Christ. Well, let me just give you two examples. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. Isaiah 55. This is God speaking. Obviously, He's speaking to the nation of Israel, but this is a strong invitation from the Old Testament. Come, come. David, do you hear the invitation of God the Father in this passage to come? It's an invitation. Come to me. Now, the imagery here is of a water salesman in the ancient Near East. And obviously, water was a scarce commodity. This was a dry, arid climate. They had to have... um, You know, irrigation and they had to have wells and these what were called wadis, these 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 little um, almost like streams in the desert that would fill up when it rained. And so you would oftentimes have water salesmen that would come into a village that would come into a town and they would um, sell water to the people. And so God takes on this image of being the ultimate water salesman, coming to those that are spiritually thirsty, those that are spiritually dry. And God says, listen, come to me to receive the water of living, uh, the living water that that, that you don't have to buy. You you don't have to purchase it. it. It's free. It's a free gift. Come directly to me. Now that's an invitation. It's an invitation directly from God Inviting, summoning, urging sinners, parched, sinful, dry sinners to come directly to Him for salvation. And so in our preaching, in our evangelism, we can follow this biblical model. You can go to a sinner. And you don't have to know if they're elect or not. That's hyper-Calvinism. We don't know if a person's elect or not. We look at every person as a candidate for salvation because we see everybody as a sinner in need of of the gospel. We go to a sinner and we say, come to Jesus. If you are a sinner, if you're spiritually thirsty, if you recognize your sin, if you know you need salvation, if you know that you are lost and dead without Christ, if you know that you're hellbound, if you know you need forgiveness, if this is true for you, then come directly to Jesus. Come receive him, come to him, place your faith in him today, right now. That's an invitation, and that can be done in the midst of a sermon. It doesn't have to wait to the very end that you tag on at the end. It can be in the middle of the sermon. It can be when you're talking to a person at Starbucks or a coffee shop. It could be when you're meeting on the soccer field with a friend. It could be in the classroom. It can be at work across the cubicle. It could be with your next door neighbor. Anytime that you personally invite a person to come place their faith directly in Jesus, that is a gospel invitation. It's a verbal Summonings, encouraging invitation for a person to, at that moment in time, place their faith in Christ and repent of their sins. You're not asking them to come to the front. You're not asking them to raise their hand. You're not asking them to repeat after you a prayer. You are not doing any of those types of methodologies. You are simply asking them to repent and believe right then and there. Now, they may pray. They may pray out loud, or they may, just in their heart, trust Christ. There is there is a calling upon the name of the Lord. Romans tells us that. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that mean that the calling on the name of the Lord almost always has to be a verbal, out loud prayer that somebody else hears? Or is faith and trust a giving of your entire life to Christ where you know in your heart and you've settled it in your mind and the Holy Spirit has regenerated you so where that you do come and you believe and you may never ever verbalize it out loud in a sinner's prayer where somebody else can hear. Now, obviously there needs to be a public profession of faith. And throughout church history, the public profession of faith has been baptism. Where in the waters of baptism, you verbally profess your faith in Christ and you visually go under the water showing that you truly have believed in Jesus and His death, burial, and resurrection, and you have experienced the new birth. That's been the historical method, if you will, the biblical historical method of a public profession of faith, baptism. Now, let's look at the New Testament where Jesus also Himself gives an invitation. You're very familiar with this one. Matthew 11, 27-28. Listen to the words of Jesus. It sounds very similar to God the Father's invitation that we saw in Isaiah 55. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden. Now, Jesus is not talking about you know physical um, tiredness here. He's talking about guilt. If you are under the burden of guilt if you are under the burden of sin, if the Holy Spirit has so convicted you that you are acutely aware of your need for salvation, the need for forgiveness of sins, Jesus invites you to come to Him. Come to me, Jesus says. It's the same wording that God the Father used in Isaiah 55. So again, these are invitations that we see in the Bible, but but they're invitations directly from God the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus the Son in the New Testament, to come directly to Him in repentance and faith. Not to go forward to an altar, not to repeat a prayer, but to come directly to Him, to believe in Him. Now, one of the verses that is often used in evangelistic appeals is is Revelation 3.20. And I've heard this a lot growing up. You've heard it in canned gospel presentations. You've got Jesus saying these words to the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So the whole idea that, people will often say is this. You've probably heard this before. Jesus is a gentleman and he's never going to knock down the door of your heart. He's going to wait for you to open the door. He's gently knocking. He's knocking. He's waiting. He's pleading. He's out there hoping, begging that you'll open the door of your heart and let Jesus come in. Just let him come in. Now, number one, out of context, this is not, anything to do with salvation this is in the context of the seven churches of revelation these are churches he's talking corporately to a church in a specific location who had gotten prideful who had gotten arrogant who had forgotten christ who were trying to do things on their own and jesus says to them listen it's as if you've shut me out of the church. It's as if you're acting like I'm not present and you've, you've bolted the doors and you've shut me out and I'm like out here knocking asking for you to come in. It's not this whole idea that a sinner has the power in and of him or herself to open the door of his heart, let a wimpy poor Jesus come in because poor Jesus, he's on the outside knocking and he can't do anything until you give him permission. That's not the context here. That, that's not what's going on. Jesus is not a wimpy Savior on the outside of your heart, desperately knocking, waiting for you to come in, or waiting for you to invite Him to come in. No, we know that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit sovereignly regenerates lost dead hearts and brings people to life and grants them the gifts of repentance and faith. So you may ask, okay, well, how did this whole altar call This whole invitation system, this whole idea of asking people to come forward, when when did it start? When did it start? Well, if you look at history, you can see that there were times in recent history where this became a popular methodology. Now, before I go into this, let me give you two or three, actually four great resources. Um, the first resource is called The Great Invitation, examining the use of the altar call in evangelism, in evangelism by a man named Errol Hulse, um, H-U-L-S-E, The Great Invitation. And in this book, he does a great job of critiquing, examining, The Altar Call. And on the back of the book I have right here, you've got um, endorsements by John MacArthur, by Phil Johnson, and others. And so this book is a very good, basically a, a very good critique of The Altar Call. Now, the other book that I want to share with you is called The Effective Invitation, A Practical Guide for the Pastor by Alan Street. This book was written in direct opposition to the book I just mentioned. This is a book that actually defends the altar call, that talks about biblically why it should be used. And he's written this book pretty much as a way to refute The Great Invitation by Errol Hulse. And so if you want the other view, a view, and I think this guy is a Southern Baptist. I think this is, um, he's the editor of the Criswell Theological Review. I'm not sure if he still is that, but I I actually think this is probably one of his doctoral doctoral dissertation. But um, this is a book that if you want to see the other side, how a Southern Baptist argues for the use of the altar call, it's called The Effective Invitation. Now, there's two little booklets. One's put out by Banner of Truth, and the other one I think you can find um, online as well. One is called The Invitation System by Ian Murray. This is put out by Banner of Truth Trust. It's actually a little booklet, and you can go to Banner of Truth, um, which they have a lot of good resources. And he critiques it and gives a lot of good history um, behind the use of the invitation system, Ian Murray. And then Jim Earhard has written a little booklet, and you can, I think you can get this from Christian communicators worldwide, or you can actually probably go on Monergism and find a print copy of this. Um, it's called The Dangers of the Invitation System by Jim hard. And so when you look at the history of this, I don't want to get into a lot of deep history, but really um, you go back to around the 1800s and you'd be surprised. You think, okay, Arminianism, synergism, the father of the modern movement of, the, of Wesleyism, John Wesley, you'd think, you know, he's a strong classic Arminian. He did not use the altar call, He did not use the sinner's prayer, any of the methods that we see today. He simply preached the gospel. And he had these smaller groups, these discipleship groups where he discipled people, but he never used what was called the new measures. It wasn't until Charles Finney came on the scene in the mid-1800s where he would use what were called the new measures, the mourner's bench. Um, One of the things that's interesting about Charles Finney, if you read his systematic theology, is that he denies the need for regeneration. He's actually... A Pelagian, not just a semi-Pelagian. He basically believed that you could manipulate a man's will to get them to make a decision because after all, we're basically blank slates and, and men's hearts and minds can be manipulated in order to psychologically put enough pressure on them that they can choose for Christ based upon the, the right amount of persuasion. And so he was the one that really popularized in America this whole idea of what were called new measures in the Second Great Awakening, this whole revivalism that stemmed across, really his area was New York. It became what was called the Burnt Over District because so many revivalistic crusades were there and people had gotten saved multiple, multiple times um, and and, and that basically um, they just, a lot of them were false converts and that was a hotbed for many of the modern day cults the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons actually came out of the Burnover district. Then you had um, D.L. Moody in the late 1800s, 1830, you know, basically um, come up with the, the invitation that we look at today. Then you have Billy Sunday in the early 1900s who influenced eventually uh, Billy Graham. And, and we know Billy Graham all throughout the 20th century from about 1950 all the way up until You know, the 90s, and then, you know, you've got Franklin Graham now saying nothing against Franklin Graham. I think he's a great man of God, but just the whole use of the altar call. And so this has become part and parcel of evangelicalism, of Southern Baptist life. It's just assumed that you are going to have a public invitation where you're going to call people forward. You may actually have them repeat a sinner's prayer. You may have them sign a card. You're going to give them immediate assurance of salvation. And then you're going to pronounce them saved. And that's just the way people do it. And so the question we've got to ask is, again, is this biblical? Now, let me just read to you some things from Ian Murray in his book, The Invitation System. He's talking about the... Doctrinal implications of this. And he says that everything's based upon a major premise and a minor premise that comes to a conclusion. He says, this is the fundamental assumption of most people that use the altar call the invitation system. Major premise: only men prepared by the Spirit are willing to receive Christ and be saved. That's major premise. Minor premise: men willing to receive Christ, come forward. Conclusion, those who come forward to receive Christ are assuredly saved. Now, what's the conclusion? The conclusion is, if you come forward, you're saved. Coming forward equals salvation. If you came forward, if you said the sinner's prayer, if you hop through the hoops to to come forward, then you're saved. That's the conclusion. But what he argues is, is the major and minor premises contain a fallacy. He says the major premise falsely assumes that any willingness which the unregenerate possess is a willingness which is preparatory to conversion and rebirth. So men prepared by the Spirit are willing to receive Christ and be saved. That's a denial of regeneration They may be prepared, but they're not actually regenerated. And so he goes on to say that there's a lot of, of issues. He says that we've changed the wording. The wording used to be repent and believe. And he says now you don't even hear the words repent and believe. He says we've got new words that would have never shown up in the biblical text. You would have never seen the apostles using these words like give your life to Christ. Open your heart to Christ. Do it now. Surrender completely. Decide for. Christ. Those types of, of words. And so I find it to be very, very interesting that these authors have really examined the whole um, invitation system. And I just want to give a quote by Spurgeon. Um, Spurgeon often is used to say, and, and even Steve Gaines in this thing says, Spurgeon led people through a sinner's prayer. And that's, that's debatable whether, you know, Spurgeon did. He goes on to say John MacArthur's done it. Wayne Grudem, agrees for it. So here, here are Calvinists had actually used the sinner's prayer, and, and I'm not going to refute him on that. But let me just give you a couple quotes from Spurgeon. Spurgeon warned this, quote, Sometimes we're inclined to think that a very great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they've known their misery. Restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I have sinned. That's interesting. This whole idea of thousands being led to a false sense of peace. He also says this in The Soul Winner. It is very often happens that converts that are born in excitement die when the excitement is over. Some of the most glaring sinners known to me were once members of a church and were, as I believe, led to make a profession by undue pressure well-meant by ill-judged. Some of the most glaring sinners were those that were pressured into making a profession of faith by someone who pressured them. Now, one of the things that Spurgeon also said is that a lot of times the altar call makes it really becomes ritualistic, almost like a priest, that you have to come to a priest. Um, this is one of the things Spurgeon said after one of his sermons, and is often characteristic of Spurgeon's sermons. He said this, Go home alone, trusting in Jesus. I would like to go into an inquiry room. I dare say you would we're not willing to pander to popular superstition. We fear that in those rooms men are warmed into fictitious confidence. Very few of the supposed converts of inquiry rooms turn out well. Go to your God at once, even where you are now. Cast yourself on Christ now at once, ere you stir an itch. And then he said this, God has not appointed salvation by inquiry rooms. For the most part... A wounded conscience, like a wounded stag, delights to be alone that it may bleed in secret. Now, what's he talking about an inquiry room? That was the whole issue of an inquiry room where you would have people come forward at the end of the service and have almost like this whole decision counseling. And he says, I don't like to use that, Spurgeon says, because it creates a false sense of, of, of conversion. It creates excitement. There's manipulation. Basically, the imagery he says is, if the word of God has so pierced you, you're going to be like a deer that's been shot with an arrow, and you just need to go lie down in the, by yourself in the forest and wound and bleed until God saves you. The worst thing you can do is have someone come up and talk to you. Now, obviously, at our church, there's times where we've done this. We want to make ourselves available to people if they want to come, but we don't manipulate. We don't say you have to come forward. We leave that up to the regenerating work of the Spirit. And let me just tell you what often happens in our church. We do not, as I said earlier, we do not give an altar call. We do not give a traditional public invitation. Some people come up afterwards, and we've had gospel conversations. But let me tell you really where... Most of the evangelism takes place in our church in two, two ways. One, most of the evangelism in our church takes place through personal relationships of people sharing the gospel with their friends. But here's what happens more times than I can count. We have a required new members class that anybody that wants to become a member, or we call it Discovering Emmanuel, they have to go through a seven-week class that I teach, and we go through the cardinal doctrines of the faith, And we spend a long time on Christ and His substitutionary atonement. We spend a long time on salvation. We talk about the doctrine of predestination, effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, repentance, faith. And then as part of that new members class, they've got to fill out a a, um, a, a new members packet um, where they have to write down You know, what do you believe the gospel is? How is a person saved? Tell us your testimony. Uh, And then we as elders will do an interview with each of those to just follow up with them. But here's what's happened more often than not. And I can tell you this is usually what they say. This is what somebody says when I sit down and meet with them. They'll say something like this. I was invited by a friend to come to Emmanuel. And at first I came and I really didn't understand what was going on. I liked your messages, but I didn't understand them but there was something that was drawing me back. I kept coming back, and I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was sometime during your message when you, when you talked about sin and you talked about the need to repent and, and believe. It's, somehow in the middle of that message, I found myself repenting and believing. And I'd say, well, how come you didn't come up after the service? Well, I wasn't quite sure what happened to me. But I knew there was a change. And as I kept coming to church and listening, things began to make more and more sense. The Bible was, was open to me. I found my heart being more soft to the things of God. And now that I've gone through this class and you've explained salvation, that's exactly what happened to me. I couldn't put it into words, but now I know that God chose me before the foundation of the world. And in and, and that worship service, the Holy Spirit must have opened my heart. And then I repented and believed, and, and here I am today because God did the work of grace. And then those people get baptized based upon their credible profession of faith and that may take longer and that may take more time and that may take a little bit more discipleship and asking questions and waiting for fruit but we have not seen very many false converts I don't know what the numbers are, but I would say the vast majority of those that have been saved and baptized in our church have stayed, have become committed, and are still part of our fellowship. Whereas when I was growing up and I saw the opposite, I saw all these people coming forward, getting saved, being pronounced saved, maybe even getting baptized, and I never saw them again. Now, I don't know if they're saved or not. I don't know the end of the story. I can't make that judgment. I just look at the observation that these people aren't coming back to church. Where'd they go? And so... One of the things that I'd like to say is that when we preach in expository preaching, we should preach for a verdict. Now, yes, we should appeal. We should call. We should invite. We should summons. If it's a good expository message, it is not a dry lecture where you're just up there giving people information. You want to, in your preaching, aim for the heart as well as the mind and for the will. Now, when you aim for the will, you must realize that the will is in bondage and the Holy Spirit must open the heart, but you aim for that in your preaching and the Holy Spirit uses that. And you see the biblical model of this. When you go back to Moses, and I've argued on this podcast before, Moses preached three expository sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. You can go back and and read Deuteronomy. And in those sermons, he's not just giving information, but they're what we call exhortatory or hortatory. He is urging. He's intensely calling them. He's passionately driving home the point that they must respond to God's word in the moment, in the now, today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There's this urgency with which Moses preached. You also see Jesus in Luke chapter 4. He goes into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah. He preaches an expository message. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, respond today. There is an urgency. And then in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus commissions his disciples to go, he says, listen, you need to go preach repentance you need, to, you need to call people to repentance, call people to respond. Then you can go through the early apostolic sermons in Acts and see that when Peter preached at Pentecost, it cut them to the heart. When you see um, Philip, preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, he gets baptized. When you see Paul preaching in Acts chapter 13 to the congregation in the synagogue there in city of Antioch, they, they begged him to return the next week and the whole town came back to hear. And so Paul and Peter and Philip and the early disciples preached for a response. And that's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we preach for a response response, preach for a verdict. We're not just giving information. We're not just telling people, hey, this is something good that you need to to know. We're actually calling people to respond in repentance and faith. We are compellingly inviting people to come to Christ. And that doesn't mean that you have to always use an altar call or center's prayer. You proclaim the gospel and you urge people to repent and believe. I like the way J.I. Packer, he gives a compelling description of preaching as more than just transferring information. Listen to what J.I. Packer says, quote, The purpose of preaching is not to stir people to action while bypassing their minds so that they never see the reason God gives them for doing what the preacher requires of them. That is manipulation. Nor is the purpose to stock people's minds with truth, no matter how vital and clear Which then lies fallow and does not become the seedbed and source of changed lives. That is academicism. The purpose of preaching is to inform, persuade, and call forth an appropriate response to God. We see this all the time in preaching there's two extremes. Some preaching is so manipulative, so emotionally driven that you bypass people's minds and you go straight to tug on their heartstrings to get them to make an emotional choice. And Packer says, don't do that. Don't bypass the mind and go for sentimentality. But on the flip side, he says, a lot of pastors can just preach these cold academic, almost like a seminary lecture where you're, you're strictly just going for the mind and, and at the end of the message, it was a good academic lecture, but there was no call to respond. He says, don't do that. There's gotta be a balance. You aim for the heart and you aim for the mind, trusting the Holy Spirit to take the inspired word that you're preaching and produce that change. And it's amazing that a lot of reformed, preachers, sadly, are so afraid of calling for a response because of their Calvinism that they don't even follow the biblical model. Now, I am a Calvinist, and I believe the Holy Spirit sovereignly regenerates lost sinners who are dead in sin and unable to come to Christ. And so when I preach, I'm not just going to give information. I don't see that biblically. Just giving information. I see the preaching in the Bible as urging, compelling, persuading, calling people in that moment, in that here and now, under the sound of my voice, to repent and believe in that moment, to urge them to come to Christ. Herschel York is was my doctoral supervisor at Southern Seminary. He's the pastor of Buck Run Baptist Church. He's a great man of God. He's a wonderful preacher, and he's written the book, Preaching with Bold Assurance, and um, a great book. Um, He actually was my doctoral supervisor, so I have a lot of good things to say about Dr. York, but listen to what he says here. Quote, We don't want to fill their heads. We want the proclamation of the Word to grip their souls and motivate them to conform to the will of God. Our approach to the Bible and preaching, therefore, has application as its ultimate goal, application. And so when we preach, we're to be preaching with the whole idea that we want our hearers to respond. Vines and Shattuck's, you know, I talked about my last podcast, my friendship with Jim Shattuck's. He and Jerry Vines have written a book, Power in the Pulpit, and they say, we do not preach merely to hear ourselves talk or simply to convey information. We preach for a response. We are lawyers pleading our Lord's case. We are calling for a verdict. W.A. Criswell said, pastors, preach for a verdict and expect it. God will honor your faith with souls. And so one of our goals is to preach in such a way that people will respond. John Stott um, talks about how he used to practice preaching in his early ministry. And and I love John Stott. Uh, Between Two Worlds is probably the best book on preaching. I love his commentaries. John Stott has a way of wording things in a concise and powerful way. But listen to what Stott admitted early in his ministry. Quote, In my early days, I used to think that my business was to expound and exegete the text. I'm afraid I left the application to the Holy Spirit. It is amazing how you can conceal your laziness with a little pious phraseology. The Holy Spirit certainly can and does apply the word for the people, but it is wrong to deny our responsibility in the application of the word. All great preachers understand this. They focus on the application of the text. This is what the Puritans called preaching through to the heart. This is how my own preaching has changed. I've learned to add application to exposition. Matt Chandler, in his book, Creature of the Word along with Josh Patterson and Eric Geiger, say this, the preacher should not feel as if he is carrying the burden of life change. He merely carries the burden of faithful exposition and the robust proclamation of the text at hand, trusting that God's word will never return void. This is the wonder and weight of preaching. So we preach for life change. Tim Chester says this, the measure of good preaching is not what people hear, but what people do as a result. It means that what counts is not so much good Bible teaching as much as good Bible living. So, should we give an invitation when we preach? Absolutely. If by invitation you mean the passionate, urging appeal for sinners to come directly to Christ in repentance and faith. If that's what you mean by invitation, I do that every Sunday. If what you mean by invitation is you have a time at the end of the message where you ask people to come to a geographic spot at the front of the service and to raise their hand or repeat a sinner's prayer, and then you hurriedly pronounce them saved and turn around and tell them and give them assurance that they're saved because they repeated a prayer, then I would say absolutely not. We need to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Are we talking about a biblical invitation that we see in the scriptures? Or are we talking about a methodology that came about in the mid-1800s and has been adopted wholesale by the evangelical world today? Your theology will inform your methodology. And so I've talked a lot in this podcast about a lot of different things. And I do want to—I do just want to publicly say thanks, Layton, having dr steve Gaines on your program i disagreed with some of the things that were said but some of the other things i did agree with and i thought it was very helpful to hear um, the heart of our president of the southern baptist convention and and layton i think you asked some good questions and i think that it's very clear that there are differences very clear differences in the southern baptist convention Uh, the future who knows what's going to happen in the future Uh, Who knows who our next president's going to be? Uh, Who knows if there's going to be more of an upsurging in Calvinism and Reformed theology? If the traditionalists, if there's going to be um, division, we pray there's not. But um, only God knows what the future holds. But I felt like that was a very good interview, and I commend people to go listen to that, especially if you're Southern Baptist, because there is a difference in theology. We don't want to apologize for that. There's a difference, and there's a difference in methodology, and we don't want to apologize for that. And so I don't want to ever castigate another pastor because he uses the altar call or he does the sinner's prayer. I'm not going to say he's evil or he's bad or he shouldn't do that. I would just personally say, you know what? I don't don't practice that. I don't see that biblical. Um, It's a secondary issue. I would not personally do that. And I would like the respect being granted to me to say that if I don't do an altar call or I don't do a public invitation, that somehow I'm not being biblical. I lost a family early in my ministry here at Emanuel. This was a family that came from more of an independent fundamentalist Baptist church. They were very used to the Armenian synergistic altar call. And so um, about, this is maybe my second year at Emanuel, uh, they left the church and um, I wondered why they left and um, followed up with them and They really wouldn't tell me why they left. They just said they're looking for something else. Um, They told some other people, which is often how it happens in church. And so this other family came to me and said, you know, here's the real reason why they left. They did not think you were evangelistic. And I was a little hurt. What do you mean I'm not evangelistic? I mean, I preach the gospel every Sunday. I pour my heart out. I urge people to repent and believe. I lift up Christ before people to trust in Him personally as Savior. Um, Christ-centered expository preaching. What do you mean I'm not evangelistic? And he said, I, I know what you mean, Sean. We, we think you're evangelistic. What they meant was that you don't give an altar call. And that was a deal breaker for them because you didn't give an altar call. You weren't being evangelistic. And they weren't, quote, unquote, seeing people getting saved at Emmanuel. Well, in their minds, people getting saved equated people going forward. And I had other people saying, you know, we're not seeing people go forward. But what they didn't understand was I said, listen, look at the baptismal waters. Look at how many people are getting baptized. That's the public profession of faith, not how many people are coming forward. These are people that have gone through our membership class. These are people that have given a credible profession of faith. These are people that have been interviewed by our elders. These are people that we've sat down and we've gone through the gospel and they've clearly articulated. We've taken the time to make sure that they have a credible profession of faith. Now, could they be false converts? Absolutely. Can they fall away because they're not truly saved? Absolutely. But I'd rather do the due diligence on the front end to make sure that we have done a biblical model of making sure through elders, through membership class, through, through conversations, through interviews, that they have as much information that they can get on what the church teaches about salvation. And we can, on our side, find out if they have a credible profession of faith and then baptize them, Than to have all these people coming forward Say in a quick sinner's prayer, turning around and pronouncing them saved and then giving them false assurance because maybe they were caught up in the moment or it was an emotional manipulative appeal. And again, for those that are from a very traditional Southern Baptist background, they may not like that because we're not seeing results. We're not seeing people come forward. And that doesn't bother me anymore. I've been at this church 11 years. Uh, we've created a new culture. Our elders are all behind it and this is really the way we do it. And so we don't see, I don't, face those battles I did in the early years, in the first couple years of my ministry when you're new at a church. And it takes time. And let me just say this, if you're a pastor and you're going to a new church and you're trying to make changes and you're trying to, you know, create a culture that's more biblical, um, you need to be real careful because every church that you go into has a Culture, whether it is written or unwritten. And usually the unwritten is the real culture. Whatever they say on their bulletin, whatever is in their mission statement, and even in their constitution and bylaws, what they actually practice and what their attitudes are that people hold is really what the church believes. And so you need to be real careful when you go in. Take your time. The way I did it was just preach expositionally, just show them biblically in the text the rationale for why you're doing what you're doing and do it slowly and do it systematically and do it lovingly and do it consistently and then have a lifestyle that backs it up and love the people and when and have an open door policy if people disagree with you invite them into your office and listen to them and and don't um, don't yell at them and and and, and take criticism um, you know seriously and hopefully you have a good group of elders around you that you can soundboard things off i mean i've been blessed at emmanuel to have all of that and so i would just say if you have strong convictions about these things and you're new at a church or you're a seminary student and you're wanting to go to a church and, and the church is different or maybe you're in a church right now where your personal theology is different than the church, give it some time, preach expositionally. And that, that's, that would be my, just teach and preach. Love the people, teach and preach, pray like crazy, love the people and let the Lord in time sort those things out unless it's heretical now obviously if there's heretical things you got to deal with those but if there's secondary issues on methodology you got to understand what hills you're willing to die on well i've talked a lot on this podcast but I do appreciate you listening. Thank you for um, your, your listening to Understanding Christianity. I really appreciate it. Again, this is Pastor Sean Cole of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. Uh, the Lord keep you. The Lord bless you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you. Uh, send us an email at seancole.net. You can find all my comp, uh, contact information. Go to iTunes. Give us a review and rating. We'd love to, to, to have that feedback. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. We'll you